0: Hey, welcome to Progressions, Success in the Music Industry. I'm your host, Travis Ference, and this is episode number 28. I've got a fun episode coming at you today. I sat down with an artist that is making music that I've really been enjoying a lot lately, so hopefully you guys will as well. But first, let's discuss setbacks and dealing with failure. Music is hard. I mean, hey, life is hard, right? But in the music industry, there seems to be a mindset that is a bit backwards from a lot of other industries. People in music seem to dwell on their mistakes and failures in all the wrong ways. They focus on the negative and they turn these setbacks into limiting beliefs. What's a limiting belief? A limiting belief is a state of mind that you believe to be true that is holding you back in one way or another. Commonly, they are beliefs about how the world around you works or how people perceive you and your actions. So obviously, having limiting beliefs can have a number of negative effects on you. It can prevent you from taking action that could be career-changing or even maybe just making you happy. Everybody deals with these in one way or another. But unfortunately, I think artists are a bit more susceptible to holding these limiting beliefs just in the fact that they have an increased emotional awareness and a vulnerability, which is exactly what allows them to create art in the first place. It's a bit of a double-edged sword. When you create art, you're putting a piece of you out there for the world to react to. You don't know if your piece will be received positively, or negatively. You also don't know that the immediate reaction will be the lasting one. Look at how many great works of art and music only became truly well-respected years into the creator's career. Regardless, a piece of your soul is on display for people to essentially judge. And that's a tough spot to be in, and it can take a toll on one's artistic confidence if it goes poorly. Now, let's compare this to someone selling commercial refrigerators. They have to put themselves out there as well, but all they have to do is cold call someone and try to sell them a refrigerator. Now, if you're an artist, you're gonna give me a hard time for saying this, but that salesperson is getting blows to their confidence with every no, the same way the musician does when their streaming numbers aren't good. Now, the obvious difference is that that salesperson probably didn't design and build that refrigerator. At least for the purposes of our conversation today, we'll say they didn't, unlike the artist who did create theirs. Okay, so let's get back to limiting beliefs. If this salesperson continually gets rejected and starts to believe that no one wants to buy this refrigerator or that no business needs a new refrigerator, then they'll probably start making less sales calls and sending less emails. This would be a limiting belief, and they are letting it define their choices. And let's be honest, they're probably going to get fired if they start taking this approach. See, there's a reason that high-level sales software tracks all sorts of data like email open rates, number of new leads, conversions on those leads, how long it took, etc. The reason is that any successful salesperson doesn't have the belief that someone doesn't want the product. They will find a way to sell that product, no matter what. Maybe they'll change the type of business they're reaching out to, the area that they're reaching out to, the way they reach out. But they won't be defeated by a no. Okay, back to music, which is why we're all here, right? You're probably gonna argue that comparing sales to making music isn't fair because music is art and sales is products. And so I'm gonna counter that and say, it doesn't matter. You're making the music that you wanna make and you aren't going to change it because of how it's received, because it's your art. So if that's the case, how are you any different from the person selling the refrigerators they didn't build? The art or the product isn't changing. The only thing you can change is your belief and the outlook on the situation and what you'll do next. This is where the average musician gets hung up. They immediately feel insulted by the negative response and they don't turn that into a learning opportunity. Every setback in your career is an opportunity to learn from your mistakes. That's what successful people do. Let's do an example. You release your first EP and nobody outside of your friends and family hear it. That is not an uncommon story. So now you have two choices. One, believe that nobody wants to hear your music, which will likely lead you to never finish another EP or maybe break up the band and start a new one or whatever. Or two, don't let the lack of plays and the fact that you didn't go viral overnight get to you and instead see what you can learn from this setback for next time. So ask yourself things like, who would enjoy my music and how do I get it in front of them? How did I market this release? What worked? What didn't? Where can I still submit this release to try to get people to hear it? Do I need to improve my audio quality or my artwork for the next one? If you held the limiting belief that no one wanted to hear your music, then you'd be unwilling and uninterested in asking yourself those questions. If you believe instead that there is an audience for your music and that you just need to figure out how to put your music in front of them, then you'll find yourself asking questions very similar to the refrigerator sales teams. Questions that start with things like how and why. So limiting beliefs obviously apply to every part of the music industry and life as well. Here's a few that I've experienced personally or picked up on in conversations throughout the years. Nobody will buy my beats because I don't have a hit. Labels won't hire me because they always use the same mixers. My songs never get cut. If I quote them too much, they'll go somewhere else. I can't make a professional record without pro gear. If I ask them to work together, I'll look desperate for work. I could keep going and break those down, but I think you get the point. Maybe some of those hit home for you, maybe they don't. Either way, keep a watchful eye out for where limiting beliefs might be popping up in your life. So to sum this one up, sorry, it's been a little bit of a wanderer. Use your mistakes and your setbacks to empower you by learning from them and reflecting on them. Don't let them hang over you like a negative cloud, reinforcing limiting beliefs that you have about the industry. Every successful person out there can give you a long list of setbacks and mistakes that they made along the way. Remember, being successful has never been about being perfect. Today's guest is DJ and producer Kyle Stern, better known under his artist moniker, Adam. Kyle has risen to success in the electronic world with his blend of chill and house with a pop influence. He's done remixes for artists like Charlie Puth and Kiara, among many others, and he's also performed at Bonnaroo. His latest single, Our Place, just came out, and the rest of the EP will be following shortly after. So welcome to the show, Kyle Stern. Hey, Kyle. Hey. I'm um, Yeah, happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for joining us.
1: Where, where are you coming from? I'm in Minneapolis. Oh, cool. Nice. Yeah. Is it covered in snow right now? It's actually all melting. Um, it was up until like two days ago. Oh, nice. And now all of a sudden it decided it's spring around here. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm okay with it. I actually love winter, but especially now that, because I have uh, Rosie here in the back, who's almost two years old now, who's a lab. So after ha- getting her, um, I've come to value nice weather to walk in a bit oh, more. Yeah. Yeah, Instead totally. of taking her for walks when it's like negative 10 with wind chill in the morning. <laughs> it's not as fun.
0: Oh, man. Yeah, I, I lived in Boston for a while, and there was those days where like the wind... It just blows in your face. It felt like no matter where you were going, it was always blowing in my face. Like I'd go to the bank or whatever yep. and it would blow in my face and then I'd walk out and then walk back to my apartment in the opposite direction still just in my face, just freezing. Yeah, just pain. <laughs> so funny story, I found your music. I want to say it was like two years ago, but my time frame might be off because, you know, time's weird now, post-pandemic. Oh, yeah. But I'm driving in the car and I'm listening to whatever playlist I'm listening to, some Spotify playlist of sorts, and the song comes on and I was like, I know this song. I know this track. Who is this? I know this track. And then I'm sitting there in traffic, and it finally, like, the the main section hits, and I'm like, this is the track that is on my at t streaming TV every time there's not a commercial. That's hilarious. <laughs> and I, I remember I texted my wife because we'd heard it so many times. It's, it became, like, a favorite. It was like, the song came on, and it's, like, time to go get more wine or whatever and sit back down on the couch. <laughs> but So then I was like, oh, okay, cool. I, I, I love this. I'm, I'm hooked now. So that's... Kind of an odd story, how I found your music. No,
1: that's really cool though. Do you do you remember which song it was? I'm pretty sure it's Lagoon. I I was
0: going through them today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you yeah, have a couple song, man. in
1: that spot? Uh, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, <laughs> if, are we talking about? Wait, you said AT T playlist? No, it, it was uh. So I have AT T streaming TV, right? Oh, and, okay, yeah. I guess I have no idea. I for some reason my mind instantly jumped to like SiriusXM.
0: Oh, yeah. No, there, there was, I guess, in the beginning of the streaming, they didn't, I don't know why, but they didn't have commercials. So, there was just, like, this blue screen, and your track would play.
1: That's super cool. I had
0: <laughs> no idea. <laughs> so, hopefully, hopefully, uh, you know, somebody paid you for that eventually. That'd be nice, yeah. yeah. I guess
1: I'll have to look into
0: it. Anyway, well, moving on then. <laughs> <laughs> Fun side story. Uh, so, um, I want to know, like, how you got into music but I was doing a little reading, and I think an interesting fact is that
1: your first show was Bonnaroo.
0: Is that what I read?
1: Yeah, it was. It was. What kind of trip was that? It was the most terrifying trip of my life, uh, <laughs> and I—I'm not even joking. That was, uh, yeah, I can still remember all of that vividly, even with the the liquid confidence I was uh, downing before that show, <laughs> and by that I mean various mixed drinks from the free artist tent. But no, I ended up winning. A remix contest for Odessa, uh, their song White Lies. Part of the uh, the prize was to play at Bonnaroo if you wanted, at their silent disco. And it's like, okay, this is a... What was it? Like a 15, 16-hour drive for me? But it's like, how can I say no to Bonnaroo being my first show?
0: Oh, you have to. It's amazing. I know.
1: So where in your career were you at
0: that point that you were just thrust onto that stage?
1: Yeah, so that's the funny part. It was also like... Really early on. I didn't get my first, I don't know, quote-unquote break until fall, like October, November, October of 2014. Okay. And that song kind of blew up. That was my song, Glow. And then this remix contest for Odessa was, I think the winner was actually announced like the day before my birthday. So like May 6th. What was funny about it was because A, I had no idea how to DJ or anything. And I found out it was a two-hour set. (laughs) So it's like, holy shit, like what I thought this was gonna be like 45 minutes. I don't I don't really know what to do. And to <laughs> to really top it off, I had actually one of the connections I had made due to Globe blowing up in the fall was um this at Atlantic, who then, like in the middle of May scheduled because I said I was gonna go to LA and visit a friend. And he talked to like Mourner Chapel and scheduled all these studio sessions for me. And so I <laughs> Right after I found out I won, then I just had to fly to LA and was out there for like ten days and couldn't even think about <laughs> preparing for Bonnaroo. So what, what did you what did you play? So I ended up modeling my setup after Maddion because I had seen like YouTube videos of him doing these short sets. So I got this um, little four channel mixer, I forgot what it's called, some Allen and Heath one, and then a launch pad and Ableton. And I remember bringing that bringing that setup up to um, like the DJ sets because they didn't have a sound check either. Right. It was like, okay, it's your time to play. up, Bring your shit up and let's hope it all works. And I just had to like put everything on top of the CDJs that all of the normal people were using. That's amazing. <laughs> it was terrifying. So let's go backwards then. How'd you get into music? It was actually very early, early on, like way before the the Adam thing because uh, I begged and begged and finally convinced my parents to buy me a drum set when I was 13 okay and then from there I did what all teenagers do and messed around in bands with friends and I mean never played shows or anything they basically just came to my basement but yeah the funny thing was like no one really took it as seriously as I did <laughs> so <laughs> then I got this old guitar and pretended I knew what I was doing and I don't know just tried to write like instrumental tracks on my own and then that kind of brought me to, like, I don't know, when I was, like, 18? Because, yeah, before that, I was listening to, like, Dream Theater and shit, and Mike Portnoy was my hero. <laughs> a little, which is, a yeah, kind of a different world from what I'm doing now. Totally. Um, but, yeah, then I heard Cross by Justice. Okay. And it's like, that's the thing. Like, <laughs> I, I want to do that. But, yeah, then that kind of coincided with me starting college, and... The next four years were basically just kind of, I don't know, trying to balance being a good student and then playing around trying to get better at making music as well. Cool. And the college unrelated to music? Not entirely, actually. Okay. Um, At first, it wasn't uh, because I went to the University of Iowa, and uh, at first I thought I was going to major in computer science, and then I took the, like, intro class. I did not enjoy it. (laughs) And then... Actually, this guy I met, though, in one of those classes was like, hey, there's this new thing. It's called informatics, and uh, it's basically kind of like computer science light, but then you choose what was called a cognate, so like another area of study. Okay. And the best way to put it is, like, I think the big ones for the really smart people are, like, bioinformatics, like, biology, and so, like, coding, and then, like, the GIS people, so they were doing, like, satellite stuff, you know? Okay, right. But anyway, how that links into music was I realized you can do music as a cognate, And that's it was like a side door into the school of music without having to audition. (laughs) So I got to take all the music theory classes for all the music majors and the piano classes. And that was actually all really valuable and were probably the classes I enjoyed the most. That's cool. That's amazing. So then while you're at college, you're just you're
0: developing. Is it Adam at that point or is it you're just making music?
1: Uh, no, I'm just making music. And actually, at that time, I was kind of making music with a buddy. We had, like, entered, like, various remix contests and whatever. And, I mean, at the end of the day, nothing really came from it. But I did learn a lot from him because he was, at the time, I think he was getting his master's in jazz at DePaul. Oh, wow. Okay. Which was a little bit different than my intro to music theory class (laughs) I was taking at the time. (laughs) That's cool. The collaboration is so huge.
0: It's like when you find somebody that can inspire you to... To get better, and they have all those things that you don't really have can be really exciting. So, that's, yeah, um, absolutely. Um, you're lucky to have had somebody you know early on that you could like really latch onto like that.
1: Yeah, I, I learned so much from it. And the fortunate thing was like, and the reason we linked up is because he was, <laughs> even though he, yeah, he was getting his master's in jazz, he was obsessed with pop music and writing it and like analyzing it. That's amazing. Yeah, that was kind of his focus, and I learned a lot about the structuring of it and. I don't know kind of like pop music broken down a bit I mean I'm certainly not a a specialist in that or anything but at the time it was really useful information
0: yeah were you thinking
1: about going like pop songwriter producer
0: route at any point? yeah that's
1: that's all I wanted to do actually oh nice yeah this Adam thing was kind of like an accident because I only started entering contests as Adam to find connections to make music for people (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> that's 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 amazing okay so then that kind of ties in how
0: you ended up on a, on like a writing trip to LA then you were working yeah
1: yeah because once like the glow thing happened and I got in contact with that A&R dude who funnily enough I didn't even think he was real I thought it was a joke because <laughs> <laughs> one of the remix contests I won before that one of the guys was well all of them they were super great but this uh this one guy Ryan was really kind to me and kind of offered guidance so once I got that email, I'm like, "Hey, can you like look this guy up? I don't think this is real. Like, why would he be <laughs> contacting me?" And he's like, "Yeah, I have some mutual friends with him." So I got on a call with him, and yeah, I first thing I said was like, "Yeah, I really want to make music for other people," and yeah, I guess that's kind of his motivation behind uh, Warner Chapel setting up those those writing sessions. Which, funnily enough, nothing really came from. But <laughs> it wouldn't be the first time nothing. Came from a riding yeah, trip,
0: right? But uh, it
1: was a good learning experience, though.
0: Yeah. Do you still get to do any of that?
1: Uh, I haven't since, to be honest. Um, partially, I think, just because I mean Minneapolis isn't really the place to be, and I'm I'm not super keen on consistently taking trips to LA. So.
0: Right. Right. What about pandemic era? Has anything been different? Like, are you more open to collaborating with people online
1: now? Or Yeah, that's that's what's been interesting because I guess. I mean, I almost feel guilty in a way, but my wife really hasn't changed at all from it because even before that, I all my collaborations with people like Blonde Mays and all the the writers, the singers on my album, like that was just purely online and through email. So it's all pretty much stayed the same for me. Live in the remote world way before everybody else. <laughs> yeah. I, <laughs> my mom would always laugh at me because we'd be on the phone and I'd just be like, "I I get to stay inside more. Like this isn't... <laughs> It's it's
0: now more acceptable to do what I've been doing.
1: Yeah, right. Like I've been (laughs) been preparing for
0: this. That's great. It sounds like remix contests were a big thing for you. Was that? Did you just really enjoy it, or you were just trying to get stuff out there?
1: Yeah, it was more so just getting stuff out there. And in hindsight, I think doing all of those was because there were plenty I did like before finally winning a few uh, where nothing happened. But I think. Just doing those was invaluable and, I guess, teaching myself to create songs around vocals. But, uh, yeah, the, the really the only motivation was just that, okay, I don't know anyone in the industry. Like, I don't know where to send things. I don't, right. I don't necessarily want to go around town because at the time I was living in Iowa City. Yeah, which is even less happening for, <laughs> like, an electronic music producer who wants to make pop music for people. So, yeah, that kind of seemed like... A good option. I don't know if it was the smartest choice, but it did work out.
0: <laughs> I've never actually done any remixes. I've definitely downloaded a few, like, you know, signed up for the Remix contest just because I was fascinated to get the stems, you know? Yeah. It, and uh downloaded it and then, you know, put it on my hard drive. Probably never even unzipped it, but it, you know, I was always threatening to do it, so. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it is nice to have that stuff, though, and it is just... Even if you're not like trying to win, it's still fun to play around with other people's stems because a lot of times things you didn't intend to create kind of spawn out of working with those.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I forget that, you know, a lot of people, I didn't think about it until you said it, don't have access to a singer or a top liner. And so the idea of learning to build music around that, I think, is really important because a lot of people, you're making just instrumental music you you're filling all the space and then when you go to collaborate with somebody they're like there's nowhere for me to write there's nowhere for me to sing you put things everywhere so that's actually a really cool angle that i hadn't thought of until you said that so
1: yeah I, i i even still kind of struggle with that at times at least on the like with regards to making making a song you intend to get vocals for like just creating that instrumental first I, I that's still really challenging for me and i don't even like to do it
0: it can feel empty i think
1: when you yeah, when you leave it's just that like, space okay, yeah is what's here enough and is it interesting enough to write to without interfering like giving them space to write to it's i'm sure it comes easier for some people but definitely not for me
0: <laughs> i mean i used to do a, a ton of writing sessions and i've definitely i had writers you know we'd be going through folders of tracks and the writers would be like, I, I can't I can't work to that. I can't work to that. They're really good at like finding the eight bars. I don't know if you've worked with anybody that's like taken one of your beats, written a whole song around like the eight sparsest bars and then sent it back to you.
1: Um, I'm trying to think. I don't think that's really happened. I, It's kind of almost been the opposite. They've basically sent me those eight bars on their own with basically piano under it. And then oh, okay. I'll build out a whole song from that. Nice. But I haven't done it uh, the other way around. Your way or the way that you've experienced. If you're enjoying this
0: episode, then please consider pulling your phone out, tapping that share button, and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it. Obviously, it would be huge for me, but it could be even more game changing for that person. You just never know what can inspire or help someone else out. I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows, and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co host. Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real-world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. So, Glow, you said was 2014, which was, was Bonnaroo 2014-15? Is that when that went down? It
1: was June 2015.
0: And that's when Adam kind of started to become what it is.
1: Yeah, well, funnily enough, those summer months really didn't do much, even with Bonnaroo, because I remember uh, that A&R guy even flew out to Bonnaroo, because, yeah, this is a quick side note, like, I, my laptop couldn't handle playing that show at the time, like, it would have crashed, so he loaned me money to buy a new laptop, It was just, like, pay me back in a year, um, which was incredibly kind of him, and, yeah, I mean, legitimately allowed me to... To play that, which I otherwise wouldn't have been able to. Anyway, but yeah, even after playing that, because I remember him after the show, he's like, holy shit, you just played Bonnaroo. It's like, yeah, this is super cool. And then nothing really happened. <laughs> like, nothing. And the show went super well, and but it just didn't end up mattering all that much. And, the yeah, the previous few months were, were much more exciting. So, yeah, I, I honestly, the whole... I don't think things really started to solidify until probably the following spring, actually. Okay. So almost a year later, was it challenging to make it through that kind of 6 to 9 months where you were kind of expecting something to explode? Oh yeah, it was awful. I <laughs> I didn't I did one remix like following Bonnaroo, so probably late June, early July, and then I just couldn't make anything I liked. And it was Yeah, it was really, really depressing, and I was just like, okay, well, if all of this has happened in the past, like, nine months, and I'm still basically, I don't know, I feel like I'm in the same spot as I was a year ago, except I have a little bit more interest, like, is, (laughs) what am I going to have to do? Like, is this even possible? But then I wrote her that fall, kind of around the, like, almost a year later, exactly, from when I made Glow. And I thought that song was not very good. And so I just put it up on my SoundCloud for free. And people who heard it did like it a lot. It's just not that many people heard it. Right. And then I put it on Spotify like a month or two later. Like this was just, yeah, really, a really janky situation just because I had zero confidence. And then all of a sudden it started picking up steam on Spotify without even getting into playlists. And all of a sudden... I heard from a huge management company who was starting a label with Sony. And then I started hearing from all these people. It's, so, it was kind of like a repeat of what happened with Glow, but to a higher degree. Right. The song I thought was trash. <laughs> <laughs> or not trash. That's that's kind of hyperbolic. But yeah, a little I hard just, on that one. <laughs> yeah. It Come just, on. I wasn't, I obviously liked the song and I made it and I was happy with it, but I... I didn't think much of it. Right. Okay, so things are picking up. They're
0: spiraling just naturally on Spotify.
1: Yeah, it's weird. And I still honestly don't know why. Because I I took a trip out to the... Because I was with this management company for a year. And they're really great. But yeah, they flew me out originally to, to meet with them and the owner. And in their offices... This was before Spotify for Artists was really a thing. Oh, right. So like only... Like these... Companies like this had these views into all those statistics. And, yeah, at their at their office, I was like, yeah, hers getting, like, all these plays. I don't know. I honestly don't know why. Like, it, it doesn't make sense. It's not in any playlist that I can see. And then they looked on their thing, too, because they're like, yeah, there's got to be a reason. We'll find it. And they're like, they came back with nothing either. And they're like, I, I, I don't know where these are coming from. So it was apparently was and still is this just very organic thing.
0: Yeah, the Spotify algorithm is, uh, I love it to find music for myself, but when I work on a project or or do something myself, it just leaves you scratching your head, like from the artist's side.
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: You'll get traction on one thing, and then the second song comes out, and it's like, it doesn't even know it existed, and you're like, but I <laughs> did it the same way, and this one was doing good, so shouldn't this one get rewarded as well? It is so bizarre, and I'm sure they're changing it, you know, all the time. But yeah. that was one of the questions I had for you is is if you feel like the algorithm helped you at all. Because I see a lot of your tracks on editorials, which is like the, you know, the the gold standard for artists. They just want to get on the editorial and think, think it's going to make their career.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, the editorial thing was, that was just a recent thing. Oh, wow, okay. Something I battled myself, like, battled with, um, like, internally a lot was... Okay, like, it's it's great that the people, like, I, I have the listeners that I do, but, like, what am I doing wrong that, that Spotify isn't interested in any of my songs for editorials? Because it, I'm trying to think, yeah, because with this Oasis EP, like, Oasis Insights has seen some heavy love with the editorial playlists, but before that, I think... I don't think I got a track in an editorial playlist for the previous four years. Oh wow, something like that. Yeah, and and uh, yeah, it was just the reason I kind of internally battled with myself is and wondered is just because at the same time I was still getting some songs into Apple Music's big playlists, getting yep. song songs on SiriusXM. So it's like okay, like I'm not crazy. <laughs> uh, like I get, it's like there, it feels like there's the potential there, but. I don't know. I guess what I'm getting at is it's, it was just fighting that I don't want to feel like I'm owed anything because, I mean, no one is. There's so many thousands and thousands of amazing artists who are releasing amazing songs that oh, deserve yeah. to be in these playlists. But it's just kind of like, okay, I don't deserve it, but if these other two major dudes are are picking it up, then maybe you could kind of... <laughs> you would
0: imagine that you know the number of monthly li- number of listeners that you have and the fact that you're organically growing fans i think artists expect something to happen on the editorial front especially if you're getting the apple stuff cuz i know so many people that yeah. have, have lived the exact same thing like one track spotify loves and apple music won't touch and then the next track apple music loves and spotify won't touch and you're like you guys know this is the same band right <laughs> like it's yeah. it makes yeah. it makes no sense but uh, it seems to me like you've had a you've had a lot of growth in 2020. I was looking at your Spotify yeah. numbers this morning, and it's like seven hundred, eight hundred thousand monthly listeners. But that's that's not what you had like a year ago, right? I
1: it's, no. yeah, and I'm <laughs> no not <clue. laughs> to put too much. No, well, no, I do know. I was just about to say not to put too much emphasis on the editorials because that really isn't everything. But yeah, up until uh, this EP in the fall. I don't think I'd ever cracked like 450 or 500,000 monthly listeners. And then after Oasis and Sites were put in editorial playlists around November and December, I've, yeah, now I'm over 700,000. And that happened in like a month and a half.
0: That's amazing. Well, there's like this catch 22 with the playlist and some of the people that I've talked to and uh, artists that I've worked with, people expect that, because you're on a playlist, you have fans. But the idea that you had a lot of listeners before Spotify started throwing you on there says a lot about your fan base. Like, you actually, you have fans and you're getting playlists, as opposed to, there's so many people out there that will, like, pay for playlists, right? And then yeah. you get, you get a bunch of plays, and then when, as soon as you stop paying for the playlist, you realize that you actually got no fans from it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That's what I'm saying. I think it's cool that you have, you have fans and you have listeners. Yeah. Do you have any idea like did you do anything? I'm I'm thinking of like kids that they wanna they wanna be in your position. Is there anything in particular that you could put your finger on that helped win people over to your music other than just like make authentic music and put it out?
1: Yeah, I well, okay. I because there's there is a small element of luck to I think how how this started happening because the whole authentic thing, I think. I mean, as eye-roly is kind of touching on that, can be, you know, where it's like, you just be yourself and do blah, blah, blah. Right. And, but that's oddly enough, kind of how things started working out for me, especially because, like, when I mentioned I was getting hit up by this management company and uh, it was linked to Sony. And then, like, because that's the year I did all those remixes with, like, Charlie Puth and Cheat Codes and Bishop Briggs. And obviously, those are huge artists. And I was getting a lot of, ears on what I was doing, but I was really kind of fighting with myself at that time because I, I was really, I was kind of making more what I thought I was supposed to be making yeah, and not the music that I wanted to be making. And yeah, I mean, while I was releasing these remixes and whatnot that were performing well, it's just, I, I really, I struggled to create my own like original music that felt good to me and that connected with people in that time. And yeah, at the end of that huge remix run, because I I did a bunch of remixes that year, got a lot of listens and everything, but after that period was over, just kind of like with Bonnaroo, it was, things kind of settled down and looking back on it, it's like, okay, yeah, I mean, I can charge more for remixes now, but <laughs> like, what exactly did that do for me in the long term? And then, yeah, I guess what ended up happening was I kind of, Finished my three-song deal with Sony and parted ways on very good terms with the management company and then just kind of really embraced doing my own thing. And that the second I did that is when I started seeing a lot more distraction and I guess I started like getting more messages from people saying that my music does so-and-so for them. And there was a clear night and day difference between uh, those two, I guess, stages in in my career. That's cool. I hope that kind of answers it.
0: Um, no, it, it does. It sounds like, um, the, I, I don't know. There's all kinds of, like you said, eye rolly things that always yeah. come up on this podcast. But I, I feel like when you make a decision, like I'm going to walk away from this world and these managers and like, now it's time to like do me and do my thing. There's like a different level of commitment at that point that I think causes people to, probably do their best work when they make those kind of decisions.
1: Yeah, I think I think that makes a lot of sense. And I guess, yeah, just thinking about what I just said, um, to kind of elaborate on the being partially lucky with it thing, I think I was lucky that when I did embrace that sound and that style and just doing what I wanted, that that did end up being something that people liked because I don't think that's always going to be the case. I mean, just... To be a realist, like, if if you like just super nasty <laughs> techno or drum and bass or noise music, like, there's definitely an audience out there for it, but... There's a I, limit. Yeah, you might... Well, the road just might be a little bit more challenging, because at the end of the day, like, the music I was embracing was still very kind of poppy and accessible. Yeah. So I guess I just lucked out that that's kind of what, what sat the best with me, too. And I'm not, I'm not knocking those... <laughs> Genres I mentioned or anything I I love yeah pretty much anything but yeah I mean just in the sort of the landscape of the industry right now like obviously obviously falling into sort of a certain sound is gonna make things a bit easier harder for you
0: yeah if your passion is making you know lo-fi beats right now then you know you've got a huge audience if you're yeah if you're in a death metal band you know you don't have the audience that you had I don't know definitely. In, like, 91? Uh, I, I didn't even know when 91. that would be huge. I, I don't know. I, <laughs> I
1: don't either. I was one year old when that <laughs> happened.
0: <laughs> so what's your creative workflow like? Do you have a schedule of when you like to create? Do you
1: just, like, let it happen? Do you have a workflow? What's what's that like for you? Uh, I, I treat it very job-like. I found that that... I, I've kind of just continued the habit. It was something I started, like, before things started picking up for me, because I found just having that structure be like okay it's this hour to this hour like i'm yeah that that structure really helped me just continue creating even when i didn't want to necessarily right so schedule wise that's kind of how i do it i i'd say generally most days now i'll work from i don't know 10:30 or 11:30 to 6 6:30 and sprinkle maybe stuff in Later, or maybe some days if, honestly, I feel like throwing my head against the wall, I'll <laughs> work for like three hours and find something more productive I can do. Right, right. And then I guess just, it's really helpful for me to start playing with, I don't know, like pre-existing sounds. Like Splice has been a godsend for me. Just whether it's uh, like a atmospheric pad background noise or just a cool percussion loop, just having something... To kind of break the ice of that empty project screen, you know? Yeah, totally. That's pretty much how I'll start everything, unless there's the rare instance where it's just like, I want to make this kind of song. I know exactly what I need to do to make that. But that's very much an exception. Do you heavily manipulate those those loop
0: bits when you get them to kind of I just do. spark some inspiration? Yeah. yeah.
1: Even if I'm not like totally mangling them, I'll I'll be drowning them in reverb and layering them and pitch at least adjusting the pitch and kind of creating my own sort of big pad background sounds out of it.
0: Right, that's cool. You know, going back to your schedule thing, I think that that is like such a huge downfall for musicians is that they don't they don't approach their creation like a job. And not in like a boring sense, but when you have those hours where you dedicate to making your music or promoting your music or whatever, like when you treat, treat it like a job, that's like progress happens and growth happens when you do that. When you're like sitting around waiting for some inspiration and starting at like midnight, I just don't think, uh, you know, it works out for some people, but it's not it's not dependable.
1: Yeah, that's that's the thing. I mean, I actually, I've known, I think, one, a few people who do have weird hours, but at the same time, they're still, they're almost consistent with it in a way. Yeah. It's yeah. just shifted. Um yeah, like you said, I'm sure there are people who who just have something where they just can work when the inspiration strikes and that'll lead to like an album over some reasonable amount of time. But
0: Hopefully reasonable.
1: Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, I guess the way I always look at it and tell myself, especially on days where it's just a total drag, it's just like, I mean, this is how I make my living. And just as if I were sitting in an office coding right now or something like I like there's gonna be days where you don't want to but it's not necessarily an option if you want to kind of keep the ball rolling or not get fired. So <laughs> <laughs> which, de- I mean, it's obviously different. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to fire myself. or, And I, I certainly cut myself some slack sometimes. Like I know I don't mean to make this out to be like I'm working 10 to 6, 10 to 5 every day no matter what. Like right, in a way it's just making sure to, to not take advantage of my situation and to, I guess, do what I can to ensure some sustainability with this, too. True. Because you've been putting out a lot of music. Therefore, I imagine you're making even more music.
0: Yeah. And that's like the way of the world now is, you know, what, every four to eight weeks, there's music. People are expecting new music. Is are, is, is that kind of your move? Is you are
1: doing like a song a month or a little bit more than that? I mean, it's always the goal I personally can never keep that up. I I may be on that schedule for I don't know as long as as long as things keep working out because well, I mean while I do give myself these hours and work consistently like I can still hit writer's block and make straight shit for two months like, <laughs> like I mean that happened actually before I made Oasis I released my album and everything I made over the next two months I yeah maybe even three months I I don't think I did anything with any of it. And I hated all of it. And then I made all, I actually went back and looked recently and I made all five tracks or had the ideas laid out for the Oasis EP in five weeks, I think, starting at the end of June. And yeah, that was after two or three months of just garbage. So. When you hit the stride, you know, it comes out, comes pouring. (laughs) Yeah. And then it's, I just try and jump on it. Like that's actually kind of why And I guess maybe this will be interesting because it's part of my process. So like, because when I notice that's happening, like ideas and songs that I like are sort of starting up pretty naturally and uh, quickly, I pretty much will work on a song for like two days or maybe even one day. And it's like, once I have it far enough along where I can be like, okay, I like this and I can easily finish this at some point. I'm just not going to focus my energy on that right now. And then I'll... I'll pretty much try and start a new song every day or every other day. Right. Just to kind of keep keep that opportunity there to to capitalize on what's I don't know, I guess the the creativity boost. Yeah, totally. That's a great idea.
0: You can always revisit something and add some elements or cut a section or whatever, but when everything's coming fresh, you just got to take advantage of it.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's I can deal with like getting super stressed out and not being able to make a 15-second bridge as long as the song that's still there, I know is good enough that I should finish, and it'll happen eventually. The bridge is always last.
0: <laughs> yeah. Which I think is why most, there's so many songs without bridges now, it's amazing. I know. You're getting down to like
1: two minutes, it's like verse, chorus, verse, chorus, chorus. I always look, <laughs> I always look at those two-minute songs, and I'm like, I'm, I should just start doing that. That seems a lot more convenient. <laughs> <laughs> but then it makes, it makes songs with a bridge at this point like really refreshing. Yeah, because they just yeah, don't happen very often. That's the thing, though. I actually, I could go both ways because there, there's certainly some songs I've heard that's like this is really short and I love it and it's amazing. I wish it just had, wish it was longer and had some more to it. But I think it's really cool at the same time because I don't know. Sometimes you do just get this like incredible, this incredible idea that's only, I don't know, it's only so long right. and you don't have to worry about making. I don't know, I guess sort of dragging the song down with any other parts that maybe don't live up to that that level that the rest of the song is at. That's true. It's like if you can't if you can't
0: find something to fit in there, you don't have to force it. And then, I mean, hey, if it's short and it's good, I mean, I don't know how many times I've been on a jog where I've just like pulled my phone out and hit back like five times. Oh, I do that but all just, the time. I just listen to that song five times. It's only been, yeah. only been nine minutes, but... <laughs> I wanted to ask you, what's your team like? I, I saw that like... Most of your artwork or all of your artwork is really very curated. Like you've, you've a clear and obvious brand. Are there people that you're working with? Do you have like creative directors, management right now? Or is it, how much of it is just you?
1: Yeah. That's actually really nice to hear because I'm always, that, that word branding always, it's a, it's a really hot word and it's dirty word though. Yeah. And it just, it scares me. And it's like, I don't know. I always get asked about it sometimes, like on a Kate, well, not always, but it comes up and it's like, okay, well, anyway, sorry, I, <laughs> I'm getting off track. It's just that word. It does things, makes me stress out. Um, so, yeah, it's great to hear that. But, no, I I have things very, very low-key and minimal right now. I, Ever since my album, there's just been this one guy who's been making my art. His name's Trove. Who's He's actually a, a music artist as well. Oh, cool. I think that's kind of his primary thing. Because, yeah, he has some really big and good songs. But, yeah, I just got hooked up with him through uh, the label I released the album through. And really liked what he did and just kind of been rolling with him. And label-wise, currently it's it's really just like one guy who's kind of... Uh, label's kind of a poor word for it, too. He's kind of just like a lot of things. He's not my manager. He's not taking a cut of that. He's just getting the label cut. But he's helping me out with the art and, like, currently is helping me, like, getting in touch with an artist for getting merch made and kind of has a lot of hats on right now.
0: Okay, that's awesome. Yeah,
1: it's... How long have you guys been working together? um, He was actually a part of, or is still, a part of the label I I released with a few years prior. And then he also, at the same time, just kind of wanted to start doing his own thing in addition to that. And yeah, over the years, I mean, we just got along really well. And he's he's clearly passionate about what I was doing and believed in me. And it's just someone I trusted. So yeah, when he mentioned that and I sent him my new music and he's like, let's just do this with my new thing. It's like, okay. Uh, Yeah. I mean, it it couldn't have gone better.
0: That's great. Yeah. Everybody needs a, a really good person that believes in them. There's so many kids that like signed to a label because they want to be on a label or they signed to a manager because they think they need a manager and then they're not even signing with somebody that wants to work with them. It's just yeah. somebody that's like collecting cards, really.
1: And, yeah, uh, that's that's actually, I'm glad you brought that up because that's, even though this is kind of the most recent thing, like, I've been extremely fortunate to kind of always have that to a degree because I, I mentioned him or I did mention him earlier but the, the A&R guy at Atlantic, um, he discovered me like yeah, when I mean I first got that email, it was like two weeks after I released Glow before anything happened with it. Because like a month after that, Mister Suicide she posted on his YouTube channel, which is when shit really popped off. But even though, because he had just started at Atlantic at that time too, so he uh, was fresh, yeah, and was just this A&R assistant. And even over the years, I like I haven't been releasing through Atlantic, and I've gotten a few remixes offered to me through that, which I've done. Um, like the Charlie Puth one, for instance. Yeah. But, yeah, even though we haven't really been working, or I mean, I haven't really been helping Atlantic in any way, he's always just kind of been, yeah, I don't know, there as this industry, trusted person in the industry who I know I can just kind of bounce things off of or talk to if I need to, and, like, clearly believes in what I'm doing. That's awesome. That's great. Yeah, you know what I think is cool is that the
0: music business is very much like... It's like a bunch of people that they get to where they're going and they do it together as like the next generation like rolls up like the old school A&R guys and their favorite mixers and producers and writers kind of roll out. And it's, I guess it's a, it sucks a little bit that it's like a club like that, but it is cool to see that in my time, I've definitely seen like groups of people like come together and like have their moment and, you know, continue to keep in touch and like work together together. It's like, I call this guy because we were interns and I call this guy because he was a runner at the studio. And so it's cool that you, you have that.
1: It's great. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And that's, it it especially helped me during those times when, you know, like when I I was kind of sitting twiddling my thumbs at my desk when it's like, okay, why isn't more happening? Like I'm, I'm really unmotivated at this point and I don't think I can do it, but he, (laughs) that didn't ever lead to him being like, why are you talking to me? You're not doing anything.
0: Right. Yeah. I have one more question that I end every show with. What right now is your current biggest goal that you're able and willing to share? And what is the next smallest step you're going to take to go towards it?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, there's, I don't know how interesting these will be. I always wish I had like these really cool things to say. But yeah, I mean, I have the general life answer. And then, sort of the specifically music answer, and just to, in general, I and I guess this does link to music, but I, I'm really just aiming to like I don't know live a happy life with music involved, without I don't know sacrificing too much of other things I want to enjoy due to continually pursuing music, because as I'm sure you know, it's it it can wear on you, and it, <laughs> it's true, it can wear on you, and the hours can be. I don't know. I mean, I—that's what gets me some time is that, is that I don't—I don't really feel like I have weekends or anything. Like, I feel like I could always be putting in some more hours. So, yeah, there's there's that aspect, and just wanting to be happy and fulfilled in general, which is kind of the typical boring answer. And then, um, <laughs> and boring doesn't mean bad. I just because everyone wants to be happy, but and sorry, side note. I guess that's also come just due to getting older. If you would have asked me that question five years ago, all I probably would have said was, I want a million followers on Spotify.
0: Right. <laughs> yeah, no, that that question definitely, uh, yeah, that, that one starts to roll in around 30. So Yeah,
1: that's, I turned 31 in May. There you go. <laughs> that's where it comes from. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's that. That's hilarious. And then, because that's the thing, I mean, music and everything and all these things... I've been achieving a lot of i guess statistical and numbers goals, so really my biggest goal is just making sure there's some like longevity to this and continuing to do it uh like years down the road, you know yes, yeah. as well as things are going now i it's hard, especially in this industry where I mean that flame can go out and in a blink it's it's just making sure yeah ten years from now i I can still be doing this because, I mean, I, I really love it. And then, yeah, I mean, I guess as far as steps to, to complete your question, steps to towards towards accomplishing that, I, I don't know if I'm actually taking specific steps because I guess luckily right now I am just kind of in this like self-sufficient little, I guess, bubble where I can kind of put these songs out doing... Like, creating the whole song myself. And, I mean, I, I don't don't necessarily need to be writing lyrics or anything. So, I think that alone, I, I mean, maybe I'm being naive in thinking it, but I, I do think that kind of opens the door for me to do this for a bit longer, especially just because, I mean, since my songs are so heavily instrumental, I'm not, I don't think I'm going to run out of things to talk about since I'm not really talking about specific things, you know? That's true. That's true. <laughs> Like yeah, I'm not. I'm not. Uh, I don't know. I'm not going to write about my struggle coming up and then try and do it in like a mansion, ten years later. You know, like. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's, I always feel like songwriters, they always have to, they go hard and they write a bunch of songs for like two months and they have to go like do things for a month so they have something to write about. You don't have that problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you just need a new guitar pedal or or a new synth patch and you can start <laughs> over.
1: Yeah, right. Like I, I don't think, I don't think anyone will ever get tired of hearing songs that like. I don't know, make them smile and make their day a bit better. Yeah. Cool. I love it.
0: Do you want to share a website or socials with people before we go?
1: Um, it's everything is actually just uh, Adam Music, A T T O M and music. Same with the website, adammusic.com.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you. So, dude, this has been great. I really enjoyed this. Like like I said, I'm, I'm a fan of the music and I think I, love I like what you're doing. So, thank you. Yeah. No, this was great. That's it for episode 28. Thanks so much for listening. If you've been enjoying the show, please drop us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. And sharing with a friend is also greatly appreciated. Also, be sure to join us over at completeproducer.net. We've got a room over there for Progressions listeners to discuss episodes. It's always a good time. So on that note, we'll see you next week.